It's been an incredible week at Journey. All week long, we've been meeting for prayer in our week of prayer. Coming out of our week of prayer, we'll be praying together as a congregation this Wednesday night on what we call our first Wednesday prayer service. I'd love to invite you back at 6.30 this Wednesday in this room. We'll be praying and worshiping through Psalm 46 from about 6.30 to probably 7.45 or so. If you can't be here in person, join us online. Learn to pray the Psalms over your life, over your circumstances, over your families. And remember, next week's NFL kickoff Sunday. You say, what's that mean that's special? Not a lot other than Casey Wolf's going to be here running around taking pictures with our kids. We'll have a photo booth. Wear your favorite team gear. I know not all of your Chiefs fans. That's okay. Only one team can win the Super Bowl um, every year, and I think last time I checked, it was us, but you can wear whatever jersey um, you want to wear to church next week, and, uh, and we'll pray for you if it's anything but the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, hey, if you have your Bibles today, we're in Matthew chapter 27. Um, we're in the seventh week of a series called It Is Finished, and we are not just finishing the book of Matthew, we're finishing the life and ministry of Jesus, the final five days of Jesus as he walks to the cross through the cross into the tomb and out of the grave. The last two weeks we've been on Good Friday and we've looked at the first six hours of Good Friday in two time chunks. We looked at sunup to about 9 a.m., first three hours of Good Friday two weeks ago. We met Judas, we met Pilate, met a guy named Barabbas. Last week we looked at 9 a.m. to noon. Jesus was hung on a cross and we left him there. We said the cross is our connection to the God of heaven. Because the crosses where spiritual rebels can start a spiritual relationship with the God of heaven if they're willing to and if they need to. And the crosses where true spiritual power is found, it's the thing that changes things. But last week we left Jesus on the cross and today we kind of finish that journey with him. As a matter of fact, last two Sundays have each been three hours of time. Today's going to be about 24 hours. We're going to go from noon on Friday to roughly noon on Saturday and then next week, we're going to find ourselves at the tomb on Sunday morning as we look at the final 24 hours of time between the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to see four unique contrasts that contrast why Good Friday is good for us, but not good for Jesus. We're going to see some things happening in the life of Jesus that were very, very bad for him, but that resulted in things for us that were very, very good. So as we look at the final three hours of Jesus on the cross from noon to three o'clock, and then his burial into about noon on Saturday, we're going to contrast some things that I think will help our faith become clear and maybe help our faith grow a little bit. The first contrast we're going to see is the difference between being separated from God and access to God. So as we meet Jesus on the cross at noon, we're going to see a contrast between being separated from God versus having access to God from verses 45 to verse 51 in Matthew 27. Here's what we read. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Now, I want to pause right there because you said it didn't really sound like, one, you didn't call Eli, Eli, you called him Eli, and that really didn't sound like Elijah. In the Hebrew language, the name Elijah, what we say is Elijah, is Eliahu. That's how you say the name. Translated in Hebrew, it means Jehovah is God. E-L, anytime you read the word L, that is the word God in the Old Testament. So it was one of the names of God, Elijah's name. Eliyahu literally means Jehovah is God. So you can understand when he says Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, it could have very much sounded like Elijah to them. One of our ministry partners in the northwestern part of Israel is a church in Haifa called Beit, which means house Eliyahu, house of Elijah. So you could have understood in the Hebrew dialect why they thought he was calling for Elijah. In just a minute, you'll understand the spiritual reason behind why they thought he was calling for Elijah. 
Verse 48, one of them, immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar. He put it on a staff, and he offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone, and let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So we see the contrast between being separated from God versus access to God. But I want to show it to you real clearly through Elijah and the veil, or what was called the curtain, in our text today. Because these were two signs that reminded the people of Israel, specifically those standing at the cross, that they were currently separated from God and his kingdom. I will go so far as to say their statement, that maybe he's calling for Elijah, let's see if he shows up, their statement became their judgment because what they knew about Elijah and their current separation. See, why do you say that? The last two verses of what we call the Old Testament, what is called the Hebrew Bible, what's called the Tanakh in Israel. The last two prophetical verses given to the nation of Israel before Jesus would come were these in Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Last two words before they waited on the Messiah. See, I will send the prophet Eliyahu to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He'll turn the hearts of the parents to their children. He'll turn the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. The people of Israel knew that there was a very real separation that they were currently living in. And they were waiting for the sign of Elijah to know that it might be coming to an end. So their statement became a judgment because they said, we understand what's going on here. We understand that we spiritually are separated from God, but Elijah's going to come and Elijah's going to tell us that separation's getting ready to end. So their statement became their judgment. They knew they were separated from the God of heaven. Not just spiritually, but symbolically and actually. They were separated from the God of heaven. This is kind of the theme of the Bible that a connection with God was separated. In the Garden of Eden, a connection with God was separated spiritually, and then it was separated actually because God kicked that first family, Adam and Eve, out of the Garden of Eden, and he put a barrier around it that was guarded by angels, and he said, this holy place where I am, you are not allowed to be. There was real separation. Later, when his people would build a tabernacle so God's presence could dwell in their midst, there would be layers of separation from the tabernacle, meaning Gentile people couldn't even get any place, anywhere close to the tabernacle. Um, some priests could get in the outer courts. A, a few more priests could get into the inner courts, and then only one priest could go into the Holy of Holies. There was like all these layers of separation between people and God, and when the temple was built and took over for the tabernacle, those same levels and layers of separation were built. And the primary level of separation between the people of God and the presence of God is what in today in Matthew 27 is called the curtain or what we know as the veil. This veil that hung inside the tabernacle, inside the temple that separated the people of God from the presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, according to early Jewish tradition, here is the veil. It was 60 feet tall or long, hanging from the rafters of the temple. It was 30 feet wide. It was four inches thick. When you think about a veil, when you think about a four-inch piece of fabric being torn, it consisted of 72 squares that had been joined together. It took 300 priests to move and remove and clean when it needed to be moved and removed and clean, according to Jewish history. And they made two every year. As a matter of fact, it was someone's job nonstop every day to be making two brand new veils every year in case one needed to be repaired. I did not know that before studying this message. I always wondered how they did any temple ministry once the veil was torn in two. The answer is they just took it down and put a new one up and went back to doing things the old way. So it's interesting when you read through the scripture about this separation. 
So there was very real spiritual separation, yet there was also very real salvation all along the way. And it too had some of its symbols in actual salvation. For instance, when Adam and Eve were uncovered in their sin and they felt shame and they felt like they needed to run from God, God covered them with skin. So separation ended in salvation. We know that when God decided that all the people of the earth because of their sin needed to be judged and they needed to die um, through a great flood that Noah and his family were offered an ark of safety which would represent the salvation of Jesus. We know God would pull a family off of planet earth. He would turn them into a nation. He would give them a land in that land and on the way to that land they'd build a tabernacle where God's presence could, re- could uh, reside and eventually a temple where God's presence could reside and then God would give them prophets so that God's word would be with them. All these things foreshadowed the Messiah but I don't know that anything in Jewish history was a greater picture of salvation than the Passover. When the people of Israel were coming out of the people of Egypt and God in that final and tenth plague on the nation of Egypt um, brought death to darkness, brought death to sin, but spared the people of Israel as he passed over them. If you understand a little bit about the Passover and you understand what Matthew is saying here in context, the Passover is all over this text. For instance... We read that Jesus said he was thirsty and they dipped a a sponge in wine vinegar. It would have been a really kind of watered down sponge that they would use to give to soldiers on the battlefield when they had really, really bad dehydration. It says they dipped a sponge and they held it up to Jesus on a staff. According to the gospel of John, this staff was a branch of hyssop, which was a clear reminder of God's heart to save his people. You say, how? Because at the Passover... The people of Israel were demanded to take branches of hyssop to dip it in the blood of the Passover lamb to raise it over their head and to paint the doorways over their house because the blood that was being shed over them while the hyssop was in their hand was going to be the thing that ultimately gave them life instead of death. And here we see it at the cross. Someone with a staff of hyssop in their hand offering it to the lamb whose blood was literally probably dripping over them and on them. But it's not just that. As we move through the rest of Good Friday, we read that the ninth plague on the people of Egypt was darkness. And darkness came over all the land. We read that the tenth plague on the people of Egypt was that the firstborn son would die. And here we see God's firstborn son dying on the cross. What in Egypt was for the enemies of God, darkness and death, so that life and light could come to the people of God was reversed at the cross. Now the firstborn son of God experienced darkness in death so that those who were away from God but who wanted to be children of God could experience light in life. Like the symbols of the cross and the life and the death of Jesus are just unbelievable. We look at this darkness, we see that Jesus endured three hours of separation from God so that we could experience eternal access to God. And Jesus cries out on the cross after the three hours of that separation and darkness Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know this is the only time in scripture that Jesus didn't address God as father when he prayed? Do you see that for a moment in time, Jesus became God's enemy, not God's son, so that we might become God's children, not God's enemies? Like the cross is a picture of what it looks like to be separated from God versus to have access to God. And the author of Hebrews says, because Jesus died, we can now approach God's throne of grace with confidence. So we can receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The story of the cross is a contrast between the one who died and the ones who are offered life. 
It's also, number two, a contrast between physical death and resurrection life. Look at halfway through verse 51. We'll read through verse 53. It's a contrast between physical death and resurrection life. Matthew says, The earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs broke open, the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tomb after Jesus' resurrection. They went into the holy city, and they appeared to many people. You say, say what? Not many of us have read that part of the Easter story. As a matter of fact, when people read through the Bible and they get to that part of the Easter story, I have a lot of people reach out and say, what, is, what exactly is happening here? I never read anything about that. And my answer is, I'm not sure. I'm honestly not sure. Because there's very little biblical narrative and context around these verses, but there's a lot of biblical truth. Say, what do you mean by that? Um, I mean this. We don't know these people's names. We're not told who they are. We don't know their stories. We don't know what they did. They're not in the synoptic gospels, which means Matthew, um, Matthew mentions them, but Mark and Luke do not. John does not. Is this a reference to Lazarus, a dead guy who came out of his tomb and walked around? We, like, we don't know. There's not enough context and narrative around who they are, what they did, what was going on. But I really believe I understand Matthew's point. What Matthew is trying to say that appears unclear until you read it in proper perspective is that the death and resurrection of Jesus brings resurrection life to those who have died in relationship with God. Like of all the things we can't understand that Matthew is saying, we can't understand one thing. When Jesus died and was resurrected, those who had died connected to God were resurrected too. There was resurrection life. Of all the things we don't understand, we do understand he's saying that. When Jesus died and raised again, people who had died raised again. So my Sunday routine, I don't know what your Sunday routine is. I had several people during week of prayer last week say, hey, is it, um, is it harder preaching three services and two services? Because if you're brand new to our church, we just started having three last week after a year and a half or two. Is it harder preaching three than two? The answer is yes. Um, they were like, are you more tired preaching three than two? The answer is yes. But I do the same thing whether it's two or three. I go home. Sunday's always leftover day at our house because nobody has energy to cook a meal. So we go home, we look in the refrigerator, whatever's there we eat. If it's a good day, I'm asleep by 1.30. If it's a bad day, I'm asleep by 2. Like Sunday afternoon for us is go home, eat, fall asleep, sleep for a couple hours, get up. Hopefully there's a good, decent football game um, on TV. Uh, Sunday I went home. I did my routine. I ate my leftovers. Um, I got in bed. When I woke up, um, I had a text on my phone from what I call student, it's not a student, uh, but it's someone who, um, I was their youth pastor almost 25 years ago, and I began kind of a discipleship relationship with him 25 years ago, and has continued to this day. Um, they were then in middle school, then in high school, they went away to college, uh, their young family helped us start our church, and then they moved away, and I had a text, um, and it just said, um, hey, can you talk to me tonight for 10 or 15 minutes? Um, I need to talk to you, and I need you to, I need you to pray for me. So I answer back, absolutely, let's make it happen. Um, Danielle and I get dinner. On the way home, I call, and I just said, hey, what's up? And they said, um, I'm really having a faith struggle right now in life. And here's their story. Uh, in the last two years, they've lost three family members. Um, and they've endured a dad who got diagnosed with cancer but survived. And now they're just stress, kind of struggling with massive stress, anxiety, and doubt. Um, and they said, I just can't, I can't stop thinking about dying. I can't stop thinking about people dying. I can't wonder who, who, who next is going to die. And even more than that, um, when I think about myself dying, I'm afraid. And I'm beginning to question if heaven is real. And I'm beginning to question if they're really in heaven. And I'm beginning to question, will I ever see them again? 
And just kind of spiraling in their faith and in their doubt, they were like, you know, I, I guess I have two questions. One, am I a fraudulent Christian or not even a real question because I have th- these doubts? And two, like, are you sure I'm going to go to heaven and see these people again? It's a great questions. One, to your first question, no, you're not a fraudulent Christian because you have doubt. I don't know a real Christian that doesn't have doubt. Uh, you're going to be a Christian with deeper faith because you do doubt. So, yeah, you're okay. No, I, I don't question your faith because you're questioning heaven. Um, on the second thing, are you going to go to heaven when you die because of Jesus? Are your family members who died in Jesus, are they there? Are you going to see them again? I said, here's my very, very honest answer. I hope so. I hope so. That's what I have chosen to believe. And I've chosen to believe that because a very credible basis of historical written, of, written evidence exists that tells us that's what happens. But you need to understand that has far more to do with what I believe in faith than what I've like, actually experienced in life. I've not gone to heaven and come back. I've never met anyone who's personally done that. So do I believe that people who die connected to Jesus are going to go to heaven? Do I believe that those who have are there? Do I believe we'll see each other again? Um, I sure hope so. That's what I'm choosing to believe. And I said I'm choosing to believe that because of the three things I'm going to tell you today. I said here's why I believe that. Three reasons. Um, One, according to the New Testament scripture, Jesus offered proof of resurrection life with what he did with Lazarus. I believe that people live after they die because of what Jesus did with Lazarus. I love what Jesus prayed in John eleven forty two. Jesus prayed this prayer. Listen really closely. He's standing outside Lazarus' tomb, and he prays this out loud, John says. He says, God, I know that people live after they die. But nobody else knows that. So I'm doing this today, and I'm praying this today just to convince them that what I know is true is actually true. I know it happens. I need them to know it happens. So Lazarus, come on. And he comes out. Jesus said the whole point of doing this is to give you proof that people who die can live again if they die connected to Jesus. Secondly, the New Testament scripture says Jesus has power over sin and death. He has power over sin and death because he died and his supernatural strength brought him back to death. In 1 Corinthians 15, 56 and 57, the apostle Paul reflecting on Jesus' resurrection said, Where, O death, is your sting? Where, grave, is your victory? Because when you have Jesus Christ, death doesn't sting and the grave doesn't hold you. There is resurrection life. That's just what the Bible says. Can I prove it? No, but it's what the Bible says. And the Bible says, according to the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica, followers of Jesus have comfort in the face of death because of resurrection life. Paul told the church, I know some people close to you have died. I also know that followers of Jesus don't mourn like the rest of the world mourns because we believe people who die in Christ actually live again and will be with them again. So can I prove it? No. Do I believe it? Yes. It is what I hope. And I said, what's the alternative? Is there anyone who offers a better alternative to Jesus? Because until they do, I'm I'm with him. I think this is what Matthew's trying to say. I think Matthew's trying to say, because Jesus died and rose again, we believe those who die connected to him will live eternally. Like, Matthew's trying to say the cross is this contrast between physical death and resurrection life after death. He also says, number three, that the cross is a contrast between public faith and private faith. It's a contrast between public faith and private faith. Look at verse 55. I know I'm skipping verse 54. Don't worry, I'll come back to it. For those of you who OCD, I I get I know. I know I skipped it. I'll be back. Verse 55, many women were there 
watching from a distance. They followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph. That would have been Mary's mom. And the mother of Zebedee's sons, two of his disciples, James and John. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he'd cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb, and he went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite of the tomb. So for me, as I read the resurrection story, one of the greatest lessons of Good Friday is that public faith is honored in the story of Jesus. I don't know why it would be in the text other than Jesus says they, they hung on till the end. In the toughest time, they proved themselves followers to everyone. Make sure somebody knows about it. Matthew writes about the women. Mark writes about the women. Luke writes about the women. John writes about the women. In Acts chapter 1, we read these women are still praying with the disciples in the upper room for the Holy Spirit to fall. It's like Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. It's almost as if he said, as I look down from the cross, they were the only ones hanging around. Make sure we notate that. Make sure we notate that when things get tough, there are a group of Christians who stay tough and publicly identify with Jesus. Let's make sure they're acknowledged and they're honored. Now, here's what's interesting. As I think about this group of women, I think spiritual community always leads to spiritual courage in the most difficult faith moments in life. The disciples fled. They were all kind of doing their own thing except John. But this group of women stayed together. And because they stayed together, they were able to stay with Jesus together. Can I ask you a question? In your most difficult moments in life, Who's the spiritual community that gives you spiritual courage and says, let's stay together? I also want you to look at this phrase at the end of the interesting thought, in difficult faith moments in life. You know, we, we don't necessarily have small groups, discipleship tracks, this whole groups fair thing we have going on. We don't necessarily have that because we think you need Christian friends when everything in your life is going well. We have those because everyone in this room is going to experience a dark night of the soul. And in those moments, there needs to be a pre-established group of spiritual relationships where people come and they carry your faith with you for a little while. Sometimes they carry your faith for you for a little while. I was texting one of my friends Monday morning after prayer. One of Danielle and I's dear friends is in our small group, lost her mother pretty unexpectedly. Uh, it be three weeks ago tomorrow. And I just reached out to her uh, and just said, how are you doing? Um, I know you're at prayer. I know you're hurting. I'm praying for you. Is there anything you need? And she responded back and she said, um, I can understand why people step away from like faith commitment and like spiritual things in this season of life. It makes sense to me why people would just have to back away for a little bit. I texted her back and I said, that's fatigue. That's grief. Um, that's normal. And you're right. But you do not have a faith community that would let you run far. Because she's got a group of ladies in her life that she serves with in our community, uh, monthly if not weekly. She's got a small group in her life. Like, she has a group of people in her life that when her faith doesn't have the energy to keep going forward, they'll carry her. But that community was built way before the tragedy. That community was built in friendship. That community was built intentionally. That community was built on purpose to survive the difficult times of life. That's why if you don't have a small group, don't have a men's group, don't have a women's group, not planning to do a discipleship group... You might not need it today. You will need it someday. And make sure on your hardest day you don't look around and think, I don't have a single Christian friend. Build those before crisis happens, and they will bring courage when it happens. I think another great lesson of Good Friday is how private faith was inspired to step out of the shadows into public faith. 
This was our Easter message this year. It just happens to be in the text again. We meet a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. I love what John says. John's one of Jesus' disciples who also wrote about the life and ministry of Jesus. He said, Joseph up until this time was a secret disciple. He's a follower of Jesus, but he didn't want anyone to know because he was afraid of what might happen to him in his life. We read that he came with another secret disciple named Nicodemus. There were two of them who came to Jesus at night and probably been following Jesus at a distance for three years. It does not tell us in the text whether they were friends as followers of Jesus until this moment. Or if they both kind of met each other and was like, wait, you love him? You love him? You follow him? You follow him? There was this coming together of private faith into a moment of public faith. And I think the statement had to be something like this. If he's willing to publicly die for me, I should be willing to publicly live for him. Like, if that's the choice, publicly die or publicly live, I'll take choice B, I will publicly live for Jesus. The way we start doing that, the way we practice doing that for later is what we call baptism. So on Easter, when I said it's time for some of you who've had a private faith, it's real, but it's private, to step into a public faith, the Sunday after Easter, 120 people came forward and got baptized and said, Time for me to move from private to public. I want the world to know I love Jesus. He publicly died for me. I'll publicly live for him. It went so well that as people in the crowd that day were watching their friends get baptized, we had dozens that were like, when's the next one? I need to do it. Two Sundays a morning ago, I challenged people, if you've not been baptized, you need to take your next step. Dozens of people were like, that's me. I need to do it. But today's the day to take tangible steps towards that. Inside your bulletin, if you've got a bulletin, If you don't have a bulletin, there's a little card in the seat pocket in front of you. It's got a gray top. It's our spiritual care card. Today is the day, if you've not moved from private faith to public faith, to take your first step of not just internally saying, yeah, I need to do that, but taking your next tangible step of telling the church, I want you to help me do that. Fill this card out at the end of the service. You can drop it in the boxes between the doors or take it to the Connection Center. Begin to take your tangible faith of your public life, your private spiritual life, becoming public spiritual life. We're calling October 1 after church our baptism and cookout day. Uh, in, um, in April, we called it baptism and barbecue. And Jay, who's our worship pastor, said, you kind of threw me off because we did a, a baptism and barbecue, but you serve hamburgers and hot dogs. And as a guy not from Kansas City, I thought in Kansas City, barbecue meant barbecue, like ribs and like burn-ins <laughs> and like uh, brisket and like pulled pork. So he's like, I think that was unfair to say baptism and barbecue when it's not barbecue because it's Kansas City. So if it's just burgers and hot dogs, call it a cookout. So it doesn't rhyme as well. We were going to call it christening and cookout, but we don't do that. We actually like put people all the way underwater. So it's, if for now it's baptism and cookout, if you can think of a better word, um, let us know. We'll have lunch that day. We'll get baptized. Um, but maybe, listen, maybe you and your Nicodemus. Maybe two of you need to come forward together and say, let's do it. Both of us have been waiting. It's time, husband, wife, uh, mom and dad, mom and kids, dad and kids, friends. Small. It's, it's like, you know, Nicodemus and Joseph could do it. We could do it. Let's do it. Together, October 1 is your big chance. And then finally, contrast number four. We see the contrast between spiritual realization and spiritual rejection. We're back to verse 54 for those of you concerned that we missed it, and then we'll jump to verse 62. It says, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified, and they exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Let's move to verse 62. The next day, on Saturday now, the one after the preparation day, the chief priest and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, the the deceiver said, after three days, I'll rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples might come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will become worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. 
go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went, they made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone, and they posted the guard. We see a realization from somebody we wouldn't anticipate seeing it from. And then we see a rejection from somebody we wouldn't anticipate seeing it from. The realization was this, a godless Roman centurion saw the death of Jesus with no spiritual bias, probably with no spiritual background, and he came to realize that Jesus was God's Messiah. You know what's really interesting as you study the history of Christianity? One of the first places that Christianity began to spread in the Roman Empire until it eventually overtook the Roman Empire was in the Roman military. The most godless, brutal military that existed in planet Earth on that time. They were the first ones, it appears, in Rome that in large communities became Jesus followers together. Probably because they had no spiritual and religious background and they had lots of things they were dealing with. When they heard the message of forgiveness and salvation, they thought we needed that. These godless Roman barbarians became the first big push in the Roman Empire of people who began to love Jesus at the exact same time. The rejection was the godly people not the godless people. The godly spiritual leaders of Israel, last rejection was worse than their first rejection. I'm using their words now against them. Because they said to Pilate, if this guy raises from the dead, the last deception will be worse than the first deception. What I would say is the godly spiritual leaders of Israel's last rejection was worse than their first if they were not even willing to wait to see if Jesus was who he said he was. Because we actually have now a prove-it timeline from Jesus. I want you to think about that. Through the lens of their own words, these leaders said, this guy said that if he died, he would raise in three days. Instead of parking their lawn chair, getting a Diet Coke and a bag of chips and waiting for 72 hours, it only took three days for you to prove he's a liar. Instead of giving Jesus 72 hours to make good on his promise, they said, we know what he said. They rejected him before he even had the opportunity to prove himself. It proves that not all spiritual rejection is based on a lack of evidence, lack of information, lack of promises. Sometimes people just reject Jesus because they have hard hearts. And ultimately, we see the spiritual leaders of Israel rejected Jesus because their hearts were hard they just weren't able to wait 72 hours to see if he was who he said he was. It was a heart rejection. But that makes sense because Christianity is a heart acceptance. It's, Christianity is supported by facts, but it started in the heart. When we look at the bottom line of spiritual realization, let me close by saying this today. The Christian faith, is it supported by facts? Of course it is, but it's got to be birthed in faith. Ephesians 2.8 says it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. It's a choice you make without all the information because God is calling your heart in faith. It's supported by lots of facts. I think there is such a thing as reasonable faith, but ultimately it's faith. The Christian faith is supported by experiences, yes, but it has to be lived by faith. In 2 Corinthians 5.7, Paul said we walk by faith and not by sight. We don't follow Jesus for what he will give us, has given us, or is giving us. We do not judge the goodness of God based on the experience of our life. We walk by faith, not by sight. And ultimately, the Christian faith is supported by spiritual growth, but it's sustained by Jesus. 
Hebrews 12, 2 doesn't say as you run your race, read your Bible through in a year. It's a good thing to do. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say as you run your race, make sure you go to a week of prayer. It doesn't say as you run your race, make sure you um, tithe in the offering. It doesn't say as you run your race, make sure you serve in the community. It doesn't say as you run your race, make sure you uh, memorize verses. As a matter of fact, it doesn't say as you run your race, do anything to earn your salvation. It says as you run your race, fix your eyes on Jesus. He started your faith. He sustained your faith. He'll finish your faith. It's all about Jesus. So today, we pause on Saturday. Last week, we left Jesus on the cross. This week, we leave Jesus in the tomb. But next week is Sunday morning. And we know what happens between Saturday and Sunday morning. It changed the world. The question is, has it changed your world? And what might need to change in your world so you can focus on Jesus? Maybe today you need to realize there are enough facts to let faith take me the final step. Maybe today you need to realize I've been trying to live my faith walk on my own. I need to let Jesus help me. Maybe today you need to move from a private faith because I'm afraid of what people will think to a public faith through baptism. What's God calling you to? What do you need to do to remain faithful? I'm going to pray and then our reflection questions will come just to allow you to answer some questions. Here's my goal for you. Don't answer with your head. Answer with your heart. As you read these questions, answer with your heart, turn your answer into a prayer. Then I'll be back to close this in a couple minutes. God, be with us. Open our eyes and our hearts to receive your truth and process it in prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Be back in a couple minutes. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We thank you for what we've learned today. Heads are bowed and hearts are 
open. If you're here today and you didn't realize Jesus' death was for your life, to forgive your sin and to connect you to God, but you've heard that message today and God is telling your heart, go. By faith, run towards Jesus. From your heart to heaven, just tell God what your heart is choosing to believe. Receive Jesus as Savior. If you don't know how to pray, you can pray a prayer, something like this. You can repeat it after me. You don't have to pray it out loud. Don't even have to move your lips. God, hears the prayers from your hearts to heaven. Just say, God, today I acknowledge that I need Jesus. Just repeat it after me. God, today I acknowledge that I need Jesus. Forgive me of my sin. Cleanse me of my past. Heal me of my hurts. Lead me into the future. Today, I ask Jesus to forgive me of my past, to give me eternity after this life, and to lead me between those points to be who he created me to be and to do what he created me to do. Today, by faith, I say yes to following Jesus. If you just prayed with me in just a second, I'll let you know how you can tell us so we can pray for you, maybe pray with you, give you a Bible, help you on your new spiritual journey. For Christians in the room who need to take private faith public, ask God to give your heart courage, and then do not leave this building before you sign up. Take one tangible step forward. God, give courage to my brothers and sisters in Christ, the Josephs and the Nicodemuses, real followers of Jesus. They just haven't stepped forward into the light yet. Let the public death of Jesus give them courage to lead a public life for Jesus and help us to celebrate their step together as a church on October 1 thank you for what you've taught us today let it plant seeds that will grow into fruit that will help us to be more like Jesus and accomplish the mission of Jesus for our lives in our city and God we ask these things in Jesus name and everyone said amen hey before we dismiss today let me say this Um, if you're a guest please let us know we'd love to make a donation to Refuge KC on your behalf um, if you need to get baptized as your next step, this card's in your bulletin. There's a card in the seat back in front of you with a gray top. If you didn't grab a bulletin, you can fill those out, take them to the Connection Center. If you need any spiritual care today, our care team will be down front. We'd love to talk with you, pray for you, answer any questions. And if you made a decision to say yes to Jesus today, take that same gray card to the Connection Center. They'd love to give you a Bible, have a conversation with you, answer any questions you might have about following Jesus. Love to see you Wednesday night if you're able to make it for prayer. If not, we'll see you in your Chiefs gear or a lesser gear next Sunday morning for NFL kickoff Sunday. You are dismissed. Have a great week.